Kia ora and welcome to Jules from NZ, a weekly podcast chocker with all things Aotearoa New Zealand and some about me, Jules. Cheer. Kia ora, tēnā katoa. Hello and welcome back to all of you, to Jules from NZ. Aotearoa New Zealand was once the playground of many, many birds free to fly and run around free from most natural predators, including the most fearsome of all hunters, of course, humans. Wasn't even to stay that way though, as we are a curious and adventurous bunch. And eventually even the beautiful or Waiwaiya land of the long white cloud was discovered. The Māori made it their home after long ocean voyages and formed a connection with the land that they maintain still today. The story of their waka explorations is remarkable and I'm going to try and do my best to do it justice for you today. Here goes. Treasures from the Vault They say that the first explorer to reach Aotearoa New Zealand was Kupe. Using the stars and the ocean currents he sailed across the Pacific from Hawaii in his waka horora around a thousand years ago. Kupe was said to be a chief of Hawaii, who left his cousin to drown while they were out fishing, stole his cousin's wife, and then fled in his cousin's great canoe, the Matafa Orua. Stories also say that he fought many monsters and sea demons, including Tefeki a Muturani, or the great octopus, as part of his journey before discovering Aotearoa. Hawaii cannot be found on any map as such, however it's thought to be a group of islands in Polynesia, as there are remarkable similarities in the language and culture between Māori and others of Polynesia like Cook Islands, Hawaii, Tahiti, that kind of thing. Over the next few hundred years, several waka followed, with many taking return trips to Hawaii. The main seven waka that were said to have arrived in Aotearoa were Tainui, Te Arawa, Mātātua, Kurahapao, Tokomaru, and Takitimu, and Aotea. And many tribes or iwis can trace their origins back to certain waka. However, that was one school of thought put forward by one dude that ended up in all of our school journals for a while. It's actually kind of wrong. We know now that there are as many as 40 of these legendary vessels that made the perilous trip. So how do we know that so many travelled? Well, basically genetics tells us actually. The genetic variety within the Māori population means that the group travelling that kind of distance must have been large enough to give us that kind of variety. So that kind of means several hundred of both men and women had to make the trip. And that kind of number isn't fitting on seven waka. In fact, as most research comes to light, all the time, as more of it comes to light all the time, we see like more and more stories of waka arriving back in the day. And unlike common misconception, they also did not arrive here together as a great fleet. 
another thing wrong from school journals, and they didn't just get blown off course to accidentally end up here either. To say that denies them the credit that they deserve for the sophisticated way they travelled using the stars and the ocean currents. Methods that are still passed down today in the tukutuku woven panels and carved walls that adorn the marae meeting houses. Rather, they actually travelled purposefully in their own time, often making return journeys and landing at different places in New Zealand to build their lives as different tribes. There are many stories of the travels that have been handed down for generations, and history usually tries to bundle them all together under kupe, but that's not entirely true. One such story tells of the waka following the whales as it guided them through its yearly journey. There are even stories of an ancestor named Paikia either riding on the back of a whale or actually being a whale. And that might sound a little nutso and you might be thinking, what have whales got to do with how the waka got to New Zealand, Jules? But have a quick think about this. The legendary journey that those in the waka made actually matches pretty much exactly with the annual migrations of the whales from out in the wider Pacific to the breeding grounds of New Zealand. So it might just be possible that some part of these stories is true. It's also kind of worth talking about the Moriori, which some people here, uh, those that are a little culturally insensitive maybe, think is a name that is interchangeable with Māori. It's not. During the time of these great forges, some Māori settled on the Chatham Islands, which is about 750 kilometres or 466 miles for those of you over there, southeast of mainland New Zealand. And for about 400 years, they lived there without any contact with the other tribes of Aotearoa. They developed their own unique culture during this time and became distinctly different. Sadly, disease and then the eventual inevitable warfare of the Māori tribes who went to visit depleted the numbers of this peace-loving tribe and the last full-blooded Moriori is believed to have died in 1933. That's pretty sad so let's talk about something more cheery <coughs> let's talk about what they were sailing in so when people picture a uh, waka in their minds even people from new zealand actually you probably bring up a version of a simple wooden dugout hull tapered at the bottom ends and points based around carving out a hollow log you'd have a picture pretty similar to a canoe i'm sure you've seen pictures of those kinds of things in books um, this is a waka, but it is a waka ty, the earliest form of sailing vessel in the Pacific. Heavily carved and power adorned versions are still used in ceremonial um, sailings and such, but they did not cross the ocean in those. Or maybe, um, especially those in New Zealand, might think of the similar sleek lines of the waka ama based on the competition that has the same name as the waka. It's got a very distinctive outrigger float attached to one side, but nope, they did not use those either. They used a waka horua, a big double-hulled vessel. The hulls are joined together with a deck that's lashed between, where they also sheltered, and powered with triangular sails attached to harness the wind. In fact, it's thought they were probably using, based on early illustrations, um, the double spritsail, 
which stood in a V-shape with spars on each side. These sails could only sail with the wind. Luckily for them, the wind is thought to be, at the time, acting almost as a conveyor belt from the Cook Islands to New Zealand. So does this mean it was kind of easy for them to get here then if the wind was doing all the work? Hell no. They still had to be expert navigators to make sure that they were on track. They had to be expert organisers to last the journey with all the provisions needed for the many changes ahead. They had to have insane amounts of courage to leave despite knowing their own limitations on these vessels to set out in this way. It would have been wet, cold and punishing with the conditions. But they not only did it once, but several times. So, how long were the voyages exactly? Well, I mean, that's tricky. Because we don't exactly 100% know where they were coming from. We can kind of only estimate based on stories and, you know, they're not always the best. But let's look at the distance from Cook Islands to New Zealand, for instance. According to my friend Google, that's approximately 3,232 kilometers, or for you over there, 2008 miles. So how fast can a waka horua travel? Well for that I've looked at a couple of things. Firstly I looked at the Te Aurere. Now the Te Aurere is the first ocean-going double-hull sailing canoe built in Aotearoa New Zealand for centuries. It was built using no nails, no bolts. This double-hulled waka is lashed together and uses traditional sails too, although it does have a jib sail, but usually they use the traditional sails. They only have traditional methods of wayfinding too, relying on the stars, moon, sun, waves and birds, although they have a pretty modern view of safety, making sure they also have life jackets, GPS and report their position daily by a satellite phone. It's still pretty impressive the way they manage to keep to traditional methods about the sailing though. Anyway, I'm getting distracted. What are we talking about? Okay. Yeah, speed. Um, so sailing 24 hours a day on split shifts, they reckon they can reach a speed of five knots and travel around 220 kilometers or 136 miles a day. I'm doing the math for you. And doing more math, that means 14 days if they worked around the clock and the wind didn't drop at any time or work against them. But looking at a historical, pretty accurate reenactment of the trip that they did in 1986 with a different vessel, also traditional but different vessel um, that I don't know the stats on, um, they actually reckon they only reached an average of 160 kilometers or 100 miles a day. So it's a bit more like 20 days. So somewhere between 14 and 20 days from the Cook Islands. And that's one of the closer places they could have come from and that's pretty round down. So imagine that, like 20 days stuck on a boat with tired, hungry, wet and cold people all working hard and concentrating even harder, all trying to get to Aotearoa. I don't know about you, but that does not sound like fun. The research says that early arrivals actually brought with them dogs and rats. And the websites all say that the pigs and chickens of other islands were not brought along for reasons not fully understood. And to that, I'm like, really? Really? You don't know why? I mean, I can probably tell you. You know, for starters, nobody purposefully takes rats anywhere. They were definitely stowaways. 
Uh, but dogs, well, dogs are useful for keeping your spirits up. And I bet on that 20-day journey, they provided much-needed relief when things got tough to, you know, keep going. Pats and hugs and licks and, ugh, dogs are amazing. Anyway, as for the pig and the chicken thing, well, I mean, even the waka hurura weren't exactly big, you know. Travelling for that long, do you really want to put up with a chicken scratching and pecking at you as it tries to flap off the side of the waka to fight the fact that it can't swim? And it's hard enough to feed yourself for a trip that long, let alone having to feed a pig and then clean up after it too. You know, you'd end up eating the pig for sure. So, for all we know, they tried several times to bring pigs and chickens. They just didn't make it through the whole trip. <laughs> you know. Skeptics say that Māori could have you know, never had foreknowledge of the existence and location of Aotearoa in order to head out there purposefully. It kind of just seems like they're ignoring humans' great curiosity to see, you know, what would happen if I do this, or what's that over there then, you know? Like, maybe they were just epic explorers called to the sea to come and sail upon it and stumble across it, you know, much like Moana in her namesake movie, you know? You know how that song goes. See the line where the sky meets the sea, it calls me. And no one knows how far it goes. If the wind and my sail and my sea stays behind me, one day I'll know. If I go, there's just no telling how far I'll go. That's all. You know the one. Anyway, the big question, though, that still hasn't really been answered for sure is, like, why? Why did they set off like they did in droves for a new world, you know? There is some thought that there, that it was to escape because looking back through, you know, um, the what's that called? The uh, anthropology kind of studies, they don't seem driven, more like they left on their own accord. But to escape... What? I mean, warfare seems the most likely, but it could have been a lack of resources or an illness issue. I mean, it's just so fascinating, and it's really no wonder that there's so many stories that have sprung up around it. It's kind of the romantic notion of exploration that inspires the imagination, don't you think? You know? But there you have it, though. The story of the massive Māori migration. I'd love to hear any questions that you have. Maybe I didn't answer something for you or go into enough detail in something and you want to know more. I am super happy to do the research if you just ask the questions. I'd love nothing more than to talk more about New Zealand and how awesome it is. So hit me up. News Nuggets. Okay. So I need to talk to you about the weather. Yes, I know this is a news segment, but the weather, the weather here is nutso. It's a freaking nightmare, to be frank. I mean, Wellington, okay, is known as the Windy City, but we've been in full-on gale force wind for days now. Planes have been struggling to land and many have turned back unable to. And yes, this sometimes happens here. It's a well-known downside of living in the capital cities. But locals would vouch it's worse than that right now, you know? 
the planes that have touched down have actually emptied of people that hugged the ground immediately or looked like they've been very, very sick while they've been on board. Terrified eyes on every single one of them. And it tells a story for sure. I'm super glad I don't have any upcoming work trips. Screw that, I drive. Also, winds picking up in the country is fanning flames everywhere. And there have been several large fires break out in Canterbury. And fires like that would be normal fires are now terrifyingly scary. You know? <coughs> Did you know that fires can be reignited up to three months later? I did not, but I do now. And down in Queenstown, they're almost suffering the opposite problem. Surrounding areas around Queenstown, they're all struggling against flooding right now. They're starting to sandbag their homes and businesses in preparation for the inevitable surge of water that's coming. In Timaru, they had a severe hailstorm recently that was so bad that cars are now failing warrant of fitnesses because of the structural damage done by the giant icy stones hitting these cars. There was a tornado in Christchurch and there's been tens of thousands of lightning strikes. All of this bonkers stuff and we're also on track to have one of our hottest summers ever if it would just stop with the rain and the wind, that is. So global warming doesn't exist, huh? Well then, what is going on? Because our little islands down here at the bottom of the world really feel the effect when the world climate changes. And trust me, some crazy atmospheric shit is going down right now. So, you know, think about that when you're getting annoyed about the fact that you can't get a plastic bag. Think about me. Think about me. I have two new flatmates now. <laughs> That's exciting. Or should have been. But instead it was just stressful. Because one of the others decided to change his mind about leaving. And basically refused to move out on the date he'd told me months previously. And he tried to delete the Facebook message where he told me the date. Um, and then tried to accuse me of making that whole thing up and being crazy. Despite the fact that Facebook Messenger records the fact that there was a message there and now has blah 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 deleted a message and despite the fact that now there's literally no text message telling me he's leaving at all because he deleted it. So he also told me he was going to fight me and just stay and there wasn't anything I could do about it. This seems pretty full on to those who haven't had to deal with him, right? Uh, he has lied so many times from apparently never feeding my cat kitty litter constantly over the top of my cat's biscuits, meaning I have to pick that out, to never using the dryer to dry his clothes instead of using the covered outside line ever. Yep, covered outside line. I'm crazy to accuse him, apparently. I'm always lying and being awful to him. But funnily enough, when I unplugged the dryer and put it outside, the power bill dropped from $300 a month to 200 Then he said, because I unplugged the dryer, he didn't want to pay for any power because obviously he was using it, which he confessed after I unplugged it and put it outside. To which my reply was, I'm sorry, what do you think having a hot shower uses exactly? 
just trust me he was the worst and i just taken the abuse from him so many times this blatant lying and threatening of me was the straw that broke this very burdened camel's back so i researched and i found out that there was actually something i could do so i filed a trespass notice with the police and then told him to get the hell out Just before I recorded this, I watched him drive away with the last of his things, never to return, and I feel strong. No longer doormat jewels, and watch me know my rights, ya munter, and that's right, feck off, ya mongrel, I am woman, hear me roar. Jules Gems! Kia ora, Jules. Uh, thanks for another great episode. You know how I feel about Kumara. And um, I also wanted to congratulate you for um, the yellow-eyed penguin, your bird of choice, winning the competition. I was fortunate enough to uh, go and stay in Otago. And uh, I sat in a little hide and watched them come in from the sea one evening. And uh, yeah, just wonderful, wonderful creatures. Um, I, uh, <laughs> that reminds me, I was also staying there with a bunch of pearl divers and these guys were like pirates, man. They really freaked me the hell out, but there may be something to do with the fact that I tried some of their, uh, particularly potent weed that evening. Um, I hope my mother doesn't listen to this. Oh, Jules, I think I said pearl divers in that last message i probably meant oyster divers but um whatever they were to me they were pirates ah so uh that's all that matters really and um wanted to also say that i'm glad to hear you're on the road to recovery and hopefully you're in tip-top condition by the next episode take care Spencer, I do know how you felt about Kumara. I'm pretty sure it was you who suggested I do the episode on Kumara in the first place, which is why I had it down on my list. See, when I write things on my list, I do get to it. I agree. Penguins are amazing. I was watching a comedy skit on my Facebook timeline, which I've now lost, and I can't credit to the right person, um, which was talking about how penguins can be gay and mate for life and it's amazing and so cute um, I just think it's incredible and um <coughs> thanks I am feeling mostly better I can't shake the end of this <coughs> cough I'm not even putting that on right now that was just really good timing and I'm not gonna cut that out um because I've edited out every cough in this episode which meant has as taken much longer than it would normally take um so on the tail end now if anybody's got any super good remedies of getting rid of this thing i would be very keen to hear them i've been doing all of the honey and lemon and ginger and nothing is working to kick the last bit so help required thank you and next up is Like, no offense to every other person who has ever called in. I love you all dearly, but this may be the best call-in I've ever received. 
Pure Jules, it's your mate Jo, and I'm calling from the USA. I'm so glad that you're feeling better, and I got something else to say. Thanks so much for your sweet words about my weird little show. It's so cool when people listen, though, why they do, I'll never know. I thought I had some more to say, but I can't think of anything now. You're pretty rad, and I hope you have a really, really, really good day. (laughs) Oh, so good. Oh, Joey, you rock my world. For reasons like this and many, many more, you should all go and check out Hindsightless. Like I already told you. Oh, shit, Joey. That was too good. Okay, so there's not much left to say now. It's time to say goodbye or enohora. But before I do, we have just enough time for one more song. An ode to the crazy weather here and a song I regularly actually sing with my covers band. It's Rain by Dragon. Dragon was a rock band formed in 1972 and they're famous for their singles like April Sun in Cuba and Rain, but they're even more so for the crazy tragedy and adversity that they faced. After cracking it, they moved to Sydney and then had all of their guests on. Drummer Neil Story died from drug overdose, like literally only months later. They had a disaster tour of USA where Mark Hunter abused the crowd, calling them something not very nice that begins with F and kind of goes with Oggets, and got pelted off the stage. Then they had another drug overdose loss with the Keys player, Paul Hewson, who wrote most of their songs, or co-wrote them anyway, followed by singer Mark Hunter dying of throat cancer. So Todd Hunter, brother of Mark, now fronts the band with the only original member guitarist, Rob Taylor. Someone better look after that guy, jeepers. I mean, talk about bad luck. It seems fitting for the crazy going on right now, though, doesn't it? And for those of you who aren't on Anchor, as usual, to go and get your mitts around that song and see what it's like, um, go to Spotify, look up the playlist Jewels from NZ, and you'll see it in there. That's Rain by Dragon. I will be back next week, and we're going to start talking Christmas. Yes, it's happening. And I've got some surprises in store for you for Sure, and I'm very, very excited about it. Who needs 12 days of Christmas? I've got four weeks. So, kia kaha and kakite ano. Mwah!